so we'll be in, um, we'll get to Luke chapter 4, but we'll start in Luke chapter 3. And what you'll, um, I'm going to do something I've never seen done before in my entire life. I mean, we say in, in, when Paul wrote to Timothy, he said that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful. All of it. And we are at this point in Luke where it talks about the genealogy of Jesus. And I'm going to do something crazy. I'm going to read through the genealogy. Okay? And so I want, I, I believe that there's a couple things we can take away from this is that every single one of these people matters, you know? And, and I also want, and I'll just throw this out there. Um, I want you to remember that what we're, what we're trying to do is we're trying to pass our faith on to generation after generation. Um, Christianity at any point is one generation away from being extinct, right? And so let me challenge you. This is extremely countercultural. Let me challenge you to think outside of just you and outside of just now. Like, let's think about our children's 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 children's, our great, great, great grandkids that honestly won't even know my name. Like, they won't. My great, great, great grandkids, I don't know my great, great, great grandfather's name. I don't have a clue. Like, I'm just being honest, right? But the thing that I want to pass on to them is, is our faith in the Lord. And so... Um, let's start there in chapter 3, uh, verse um, 23. And if you'll remember, the, when Jesus, we, last week we looked at Jesus had just gotten baptized in the Jordan River, and we looked at the Jordan River was always an important location where this big transfer of power would happen. The two big things uh, that we mentioned was that was when Moses transferred power to Joshua um, and then that was also where Elijah transferred power to Elisha. And in both of those situations, the Jordan River parted so people could walk through on dry land. And as we looked at the text, we said this is a moment where um, John the Baptist is transferring uh, the, the responsibility off of uh, the law onto grace. And he's transferring. There's this moment where this is when Jesus starts his ministry, right? And that's what John did. He came and he preached a baptism of repentance and a baptism of the law. And Jesus came and preached a baptism of grace and the gospel. And so even then we see that again, that Jesus comes and now this responsibility uh, when Jesus is baptized, it's this image of responsibility being taken from man and onto the God-man, right? Because please hear me say this, guys. You do not want to be responsible for yourself. You know that, right? Like, because when I'm fully responsible, who's left to blame when things go wrong? Me, right? And so even you can see this in young kids. You can see this in, in this generation we're bringing up. Is this generation is quick to point. It was, it was me, me. And where did they get that? Well, they got it from us. Where did we get it? Genesis chapter 3 right? As soon as the fall happens, what does Adam do? He says what? He says, the woman, what? You gave me. And so this is our pattern is we want to push responsibility off of ourselves and thank God for God that when Jesus is baptized, it's this image of the responsibility no longer falls on man or men like John the Baptist, or the responsibility no longer falls on the law, which would always be Moses. The responsibility no longer falls on the prophets like Elijah. Now the full responsibility falls on the weight and shoulders of Jesus Christ, the God-man. Y'all follow me here? So there's a lot that happened 
there. And, and I even love it that Jesus comes along, <clears throat> and in other parts of Scripture, Jesus is very clear. He says, hey guys, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. Y'all know this, right? Which, by the way, in Scripture, who always represents the law? Moses. And who's one of the greatest prophets ever? Elijah. You think this is a coincidence, by the way, at the Jordan River there, that what they did at the Jordan. And, and Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law. He said, I came to fulfill it perfectly, right? And so this is also why, man, there's so much, and I'm sorry if I rambled on last week and even now, there's three times where God speaks from heaven. This is the first time when Jesus starts his ministry. It says the Jordan River doesn't part, but what parts? The heavens part, and God speaks from heaven and says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. That's one time. The second time that God speaks from heaven is on the Mount of Transfiguration where Peter, James, and John go up and they see uh, Jesus glorified uh, in bodily form. And who is standing next to Him? Moses and who can guess? Elijah. Who is that? The law and the prophets. Right? And the thing is, is it wasn't Jesus versus Moses and Elijah. It wasn't like, okay, let's, let's fight this out. Let's see who wins. They were standing there in communion because Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets. And that's, one of the, that's the second of only three times that God speaks from heaven. It's this visible image of this is my son who has fulfilled everything in every good way. And it's not that I'm just like, eh, When God sees His Son baptized, He says, I am pleased. I am well pleased. And it's so important that we realize that Jesus, He's not God that turned into a man for a while and then turned back into God. He was not, don't you dare believe this, that He was a good man and then became God. He wasn't 50% man and 50% God. He was absolutely 100,000% man and absolutely 100,000% God, right? Because this problem of sin, two things were happened was man was obligated but was not able to solve the solution. God was able to solve the solution, but he was not obligated, right? I'm giving y'all like 10 years of seminary right here, okay? So, thank you. So, so the God-man, Jesus, is both obligated and able to satisfy the wrath of God. And so that's why that solution comes down. And he doesn't erase, he doesn't tear up the law and the prophets. He comes and he fulfills them. He satisfies them. He does what they could never, ever do. And please don't miss this. John the Baptist's ministry was then finished. So the responsibility on man's shoulders was gone. And it now falls on the shoulders of this other man, Jesus Christ. Right? Are y'all following me here? Oh, and this is why we had to have a man as our representative. We had to have a guy that he was, he was legit. Like he was really a guy. Like he didn't, Jesus didn't fly down from heaven with, with like a magical stork, you know, f- floated down and, and here is baby Jesus, right? He didn't appear as a 30-year-old man. He was 100% born of a man. Why do you think I'm saying this? Because Luke says, hey, let me show you how much of a man he was, right? So here's the genealogy of Luke, or in Luke. It says, verse 23, it says, now Jesus himself was about 
30 years old when he began his ministry. Okay, so 30 years old, that is, the, that is when a man would start his profession. Okay, that specifically is when the Levites, when the priests would start actually serving in the temple. This is not a coincidence. 30 years old, that was the time when, when they would no longer be training for, but they would be going and doing the sacrifices. He was the son, so it was thought of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Joshek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Resha, the son of Zerubbabel. Does that name sound familiar, by the way? We spent an entire year looking at that guy. Zerubbabel was the guy that rebuilt the uh, temple in Jerusalem. And by the way, if you look at Matthew's genealogy, it is completely different from Luke's, but there is one name that they share. Can you guess what it is? Zerubbabel. So their genealogies do this, they, and then they come together at Zerubbabel, and then they go apart again, and they'll come back together here in a second. The son of Sheltiel, the son of Nerai, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Er, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Jorim, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meliah, the son of Manah, the son of Mattathah, the son of Nathan, the son of David, that's the exact David you're thinking of, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Simon, the son of Nashon, the son of Amminadab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of who? Abraham. That's the one you're thinking of. That's where Matthew stops his genealogy in Matthew's gospel. But Luke says, I want you to see that Jesus was not just a Jewish guy. He was a guy. He was 100% man. So he goes on. Luke says, let's, let's keep running this thing. He says, uh, where did that go? The son of... What verse? 34. There it is. Verse 34. You're exactly right. The son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sarug, the son of Rai, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphasax, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of who? Adam, the son of God. Okay, first of all, be impressed. I didn't stutter over a single. Did y'all see that? I was a little nervous, actually. But here's the thing. Uh, James, we're talking about leadership. 
Say it with confidence and people will follow. I probably butchered some of those names, but no one noticed because I just kept moving on. That's 90% of leadership is saying, we're going this way. And then people say, all right. And then, yeah. Okay, so first of all, I want you to see yeah, that. Secondly, look, he purposely, he traces Jesus' genealogy all the way back to Adam, the son of God. And so he's pointing out, he's saying, hey, this Jesus, he was absolutely as human as you and I are. And time out. Think about this. Think about this for a second. Why did he put the genealogy right there? Why didn't he put it before the birth of Jesus? Have you seen this? Like, why did he stick it in? Like, it's, Jesus has already been presented at the temple. It says the boy Jesus, he was uh, at the temple. It says Jesus is already baptized. Why did Luke say, hey, I'm going to stick this genealogy right here. This is the perfect spot. I don't think it was a mistake. What he's doing is he's reminding his readers, Jesus was completely a man just like you and I. Why is that important? Look what comes next. The very next thing. Chapter 4, verse 1. And remember, the chapters are not inspired in your Bible, so there would not have been a chapter break. This is an example where the chapter really breaks up the thought process, okay? So, but they were added years later. Chapter 4, verse 1. He immediately goes into, he makes this long list of, hey, Jesus is a man just like you and me. And then he immediately says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, so that's returned from getting baptized, and was led by the Spirit into the what? Desert, the wilderness. And we've said at length, I won't talk about it right now, but man, do you want to know where growth occurs? It's in the wilderness, right? Personal growth almost always occurs in the wilderness. We'll see why in a second. Where for 40 days, he was tempted by the devil. He, okay, so how, how, how human was Jesus? Look, it even says here, he ate nothing during those days. And, and I like that Luke even throws this in. And at the end of them, he was what? Hungry. Okay, now, so time out. Isn't that kind of a stupid thing to say? He ate for 40 days and then he was hungry. It's like, is anyone like, oh, wow, you're hungry. Like, I, sometimes I don't eat for 40 minutes after having a meal. And I'm like, and you've all done it too. Don't laugh at me. You come home from eating out and you go to the fridge and open the door. Am I the only one? Okay, yeah, me and the uh, 13-year-old girls in the room. Yes, okay, that's us. 14, sorry. Sorry, 14-year-old girls. Okay, so I'm right there with them. Right? Now notice, the fact that he said he didn't eat for 40 days and he was hungry, that's really stupid. Unless you realize he's trying to show his readers, this is a man. Jesus was a man. Like he was absolutely as human as you am. <laughs> oh, gosh. As you am? Uh, he was absolutely as human as you are and I am. As we is, yeah, as you am, as we is, as us are, all of that, completely. Okay, and then, and then keep going. So this is where it gets interesting. I love that he just says, verse 3, the devil said to him, doesn't introduce him, it doesn't need an introduction, by the way, doesn't deserve an introduction, and please hear me say this, he doesn't explain why he's there because he's there, right? So in our culture, especially church culture, it's funny because we, sometimes we behave as if, as if we're shocked when we say, I feel like the devil's really attacking me. <laughs> I'm glad to see me all laugh. Do you want to know my response? 
Duh. Why are you surprised? Like if Luke was writing a, a story of your life, that sentence should just pop up. Oh, and the devil was there tempting him. That's men in the room. That's us every day, right? I can name the temptations every single day, you know? So don't act surprised when it just pops up. Oh, and the devil is there with him. That's what he does. You know, Scripture says, this is not my opinion, it says this, that Satan roams the earth to and fro, and it says that he is searching for someone to devour. So guys, in a world that we try to make spiritual warfare not real, and we try to make it super mystical and weird, it is so real. It is so real. Anyways, verse 3, the devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Okay, so I want to do this. I want to read through these temptations. I want to point out a couple things of each one. And then I've got a couple points I want to point out at the end. We'll see if we can get through all this. Um, so the first temptation, he says, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Why does he say that? Because Jesus is hungry. Like he's hungry. And Jesus said, it is written, man does not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor for it has been given to me. Which is true. Remember guys, Satan is called the prince of this world for a time. He has power on earth for a time. Okay, uh, he, he does have influence and power, but you do not need to fear the prince of this world. Do you want to know why? It's because the king lives in you. Please don't miss that. Does the prince have power? Yeah, only as much as the king gives him. And he knows the pecking order, right? There's no point in Scripture where demons ever argue with Jesus. Ever, 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 ever. Instead, they plead with him. They beg him. Anyways, keep going. I will give you all authority and splendor for it has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. And so that first temptation has to do with meeting His physical needs. This second temptation has to do with just control and power and by the way if you want to talk about the greatest temptations on earth we're just naming them right how many of our temptations fall into that category of just i just need this need met and we can rationalize it by the way and then secondly of, of control and power and then look at the third one the devil led him to jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple if you are the son of god he said throw yourself down from here for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Okay, so time out there. If, if this section of Scripture ended right there, we could make a pretty good argument that, that the devil is trying, to keep, uh, is trying to claim that God wants to keep Jesus safe. I'm going to repeat that if we stopped right there. Because look at what he says. He argues. He says, hey, it says that 
you, they, they will lift up your hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. It, it, it appears as if the, this, the argument, the foundation is that God wants to keep Jesus safe and comfortable. However, Jesus' response points out what's actually happening here. Look, Jesus answered, look, it says, look at Jesus' response. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Okay, so make sure you get this right. This issue that Satan is tempting him with is not the issue of God wants to make you comfortable or not. It's the issue of he's saying, hey, I want you to prove to me that you're God. Do you see that? How do we know that? Because that's what Jesus responds. He says, don't put the Lord your God to the test. And so what Satan's trying to get him to do is trying to, trying to get him to walk by uh, sight rather than walk by faith. Do you all see that? Here's, here's why this is so important. Um, is because when we look at, look at all these temptations together. You know, we didn't spend a ton of time on them. But if I was going to summarize all of them, I would say this. Did you notice how Satan is working very hard to keep Jesus comfortable? Let me let that sink in for a second. Did you realize Satan's work, his objective is to ensure that Jesus does not suffer? Right? He's trying to feed him. He's trying to give him control, power, influence. He's trying to make sure that there's no need to walk by faith, but instead to walk by sight. Please don't, please don't miss this. Satan's objective is to make sure that man doesn't suffer. It's this illusion of comfort. And so, so this is why I say this, is because our culture lines up completely with that of Satan's kingdom. In our culture, we avoid difficulty, we avoid suffering in every possible way. And I get it, I understand that. But even in our culture, that if we see someone struggle, then somehow that's a sign of failure on their part, right? That we see people struggling and we say, that guy's screwed up somewhere. He's, he's a loser, he's a failure, right? Uh, this is why it's like in our culture, a, a common thing you'll hear is like, you know, kids say work uh, smarter, not harder, which I, I get it. I think that's cool. I think that's great. But did you know that sometimes it's better to work harder rather than work smarter? You want to know why? Because Scripture says that builds character and that builds perseverance and it builds hope and it says hope will not disappoint us. And so in our culture, like that, that is a foundational truth in our culture is that everything is here for your comfort. And another foundational truth is that God is here for your comfort. And Satan loves that false theology because we get behind it and stand behind it. I've told this story before and I have permission to tell it. Is there's uh, one time where I had to dig a trench from a power source to my new shop that I was building and I had my friend Matt there was helping me do it. And um, I had got the power and everything. I built that shop. It was a couple years ago. And as the story goes, I don't remember it exactly, but as I'm told is that I left Matt there because you got to dig out where it's going in and you got to dig out right where it's coming out. You know, a trencher can't get in there. Otherwise, you'll tear up a bunch of stuff. And so I, I, I guess I told him, I don't remember this part, but I said, hey, start digging here. I'm going to go grab a, I'm going to go rent a trencher. 
And the way the story comes back to me, I don't think it's right, but I, apparently I, I said I was going to go get a trencher, and instead I came back with a shovel, <laughs> just a new shovel instead. And so, um, and I said, hey, this is, one, this is a lot cheaper, but two is I want to know the value of this work. I want to know the value of that trencher. You know what I mean? Like I want to... I don't want to take advantage of that. And it's a good workout too. And so we start digging. And Matt, as my witness, every, I was there the whole time, right? I mean, I don't, I mean, I'm there digging with you. That's what I'm saying, right? And so we did. We dug by hand. And it wasn't that far. It's probably 30 feet. Um, and, but it's, you know, but it's got to be 24 inches under because I didn't put it in conduit. And we dug and dug and dug. And, and at the end of the day, we got it done. And it looks great. And it's still up and it's still going. But, but my point is, is that if anyone would have driven by, they would have said, oh, look at those losers. Oh, look at them struggle. Look at them suffer, right? And I thought, one, we had a great time. Yeah, thanks. You're such a liar. You what? Oh, that's right. You did drop by. Yeah. Um, but here, here's my point. From the, obviously you made a big impact on my, I can't remember. But my point is from the world standard, they looked at us suffering and they looked at us struggling and that, I promise you, that scene is failure. And people come by and they'd say, hey, why don't you use a trencher? Well, because I don't always want to do it the easy way. Sometimes it's really good to do it the hard way so we understand because it builds perseverance and character. And so, um, and this is our culture, is that struggle is a sign of failure. And pay attention, our culture, we're, we're constantly pushing towards luxury and that the best thing you can do is have someone else do something for you, you know? Like, y'all have all seen WALL-E, right? Like, you realize we're getting closer and closer to that as a reality. WALL-E, where no one does anything but has things do for you, know? It's like, we have cars that parallel park themselves now, and part, part of me, I'm like, that's kind of cool, but part of me, I'm like, I'm also a man that knows how to operate a steering wheel, you know? I'm like, do I need to, sorry if, if y'all's car park yourself, That's not a, that wasn't a jab at you, but I'm just saying, I can operate a car, you know, or, they, or the one that it like, it backs your trailer up for you, like some trucks do that, and I'm like, I know how to back up a trailer, man, these are things that men need to know how to do, by the way, like, you know, hook up a trailer and back up a trailer, but this is what our culture does, it builds everything on this false foundation that God does not want you to suffer and if you're suffering, that's not his plan. And if you believe that, you will filter everything in life through those lenses. Right? So um, imagine I've got a pair of glasses, and, and it's like that's my foundation. And so anything that happens, I filter difficulty through that false foundation that God does not want me to suffer. And if that's our false foundation, what happens when I find myself suffering? Then, then, my, then everything breaks apart, right? Uh, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll just look at that real quick. Head to the right, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Second Corinthians chapter 1. We'll look at verse 8. So this is Paul and Timothy writing to the church in Corinth. I know that because I just glanced at chapter 1, verse 1. So this is Paul and Timothy writing to this church, and, and they would spend years uh, at Corinth. Verse 8, he says, 
we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about the hardships that we suffered. In the province of Asia, we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. And so I'll just hit on this real quick. Yeah, can a, can a man and woman of God suffer with depression so much that they are suicidal? The answer is yes, right? Um, absolutely. We see m- multiple people through Scripture, they were completely faithful to the Lord and they struggled even to the point of wanting to die, okay? And then I also want to point out that he says, we were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure. So that wonderful theology that fits great on a bumper sticker and a coffee cup that says God will not tempt you or walk you through something you can't, that you can't handle, that is absolute a lie straight from hell, right? Because Scripture says that's the whole point is He takes you to, through things that you think, I cannot do this. Uh, verse 9, Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. But this happened so that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will continue to deliver us. And so, I want to point this out, is that if you're living life on that false foundation that God doesn't use suffering, then it just doesn't work, right? You'll find yourself hiding. You'll find yourself struggling with all the promises of God. Or, if we can build it on this true foundation that God allows suffering for His glory and our good, that can change everything, right? And the difficulty about that is that if you're like me, I have to remind myself of that constantly, okay? Because if you don't remind yourself of the truth, then what's in front of you will deceive you. Um, There was one time when I was, I think I was in fifth or sixth grade. I'm going to tell you a story I haven't told a lot of people actually. Um, But it was, it was me and a couple of my cousins and it was up in Choctaw, Oklahoma, and they were always getting into trouble, man. They were, they, not me, I was just there along. They were the older cousins. I was just, I was just followed along. And so, um, there was the long story short, but I don't want to tell you the long story. There was, there was one night where we ended up, we ended up in a pretty scary situation, and it so happened that we found ourselves, um, we were kind of trapped in this area where this car, this car had wrecked and there was a person laying in the car not moving seemingly unconscious and the only way for us to get out was we had to climb through this car next to this person that we didn't know if they were dead or alive right and so I'm like fifth and sixth grade and it's dark and there's just horrible things going on around me and oh oh did I mention it was October 31st by the way did I say that I didn't say that oh okay so yeah, so, okay, now time out, hold on. So, oh, that's true, it's a haunted house, in case some of y'all didn't know. James, you look confused, okay? So that didn't happen, yeah. So notice, notice what just happened. You were seeing and listening to everything I just said through a false foundation. And when you 
instantly remembered the true foundation, what happened in your heart just now. Oh, right? Like, like think about me when I was, I mean, I, that really was, a, it was a haunted house. It was at the fireman's, the firehouse, and they put on good ones up there, man, in Oklahoma. And so we were these kids, we're like, we'll do it, we're cool. And it was terrifying. And so don't, don't miss this. When I was a kid, when I was a tiny baby, um, hey, when I was a child, I thought like a child. Did you know that? I reasoned like a child. This is good. Someone should write this down, right? I, but, and, and when I was a kid, I didn't understand. Like, I knew in my head, this is all fake. But the experience overwhelmed my foundation. Do you follow me? And so I, in that one, I remember we were going through this haunted house, and literally we got so scared, they shut it down. They said, hey... And so the part where we did have to climb through the car, that was at the very end, but they, we were so afraid. They said, okay, hold on guys, <laughs> shut it down. And we did have to climb through the car and there was a guy in the car, but he was just laying there and just looking at us like, hey, like, cause we were so scared. But our experience overwhelmed our foundation. I knew it was a haunted house. We paid to go there, blah, 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 right? And then there was another time I went through a haunted house with my cousins again and my grandma was there with us. Okay, different experience. Or I'll say it this way. You have this old, uh, wise, mature woman of God. You have these young, stupid, foolish morons. We went through the same haunted house, but our experiences were vastly different. Do I have to tell you why? Like, I remember we were so afraid. We were so scared. And I remember there was one part where we had grandma... And we were holding her in front of us. And I distinctly remember, and she was laughing. This lady was smiling and having a time of her life. And the reason I remember that we were holding her in front of us is because they did that thing where they let us pass and then they jumped out behind us. And then we like trampled over grandma to get ahead of her. And the whole time she is laughing. Why is that? Because she has her life built on this foundation that she knows Everything I'm seeing is fake at this haunted house. She knows all of this. None of this is real. I'm not in any threat. I'm not in any danger, right? And because of her maturity, because of her wisdom, is that the experience did not overwhelm the foundation. And I'll just say it this way. Man, that's the struggle, right? Right? Like what Paul said. um, Actually, I know it is Paul. I'm just joking. That when I was a child, I reasoned like a child. And then he says, when I became a man, do you know what I did? I put childish ways behind me, right? And so I'm looking at this, the reality of temptation. I'm looking at this whole picture that Satan wants us to believe that God wants us to be comfortable in every single situation. I'm looking at how our culture constantly tells us you shouldn't struggle. You should be comfortable. If there's difficulty, then God's mad at you. And do not let your environment overwhelm your foundation, dear church. Please don't. Because life is kind of like this haunted house that we're walking through and Satan's jumping out and trying to scare us. And, and these things appear as if they're, it's, this is the end. These things appear as if this is absolutely how it, it's, it's over, right? And Scripture teaches us that, man, through every temptation, through every trial... No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. Right? And when you are tempted, He will provide a way out. 
I'm just quoting the Bible to you right there. That's not a sermon note. That's just Scripture. And so, and so let me say this, man. I know life is tough. I know, I know Satan fights for our comfort. I know I find my heart fighting for my comfort above anything else. But if that's your foundation, it won't last. Our foundation is, is in the reality of God using difficulty, using temptation, and that our foundation, that when we're facing this difficult environment, that we can be like my grandma, that, that, and you know what I mean, I don't want to be insensitive, but that in our soul and in our heart, we have absolute peace. We don't necessarily laugh at it in the face, but my grandma had incredible peace. We did not. <laughs> I don't need to tell you, my heart was so afraid. And, and by the way, once we got out of the haunted house on the drive home, how do you think we felt? We were so excited. And we looked back, and we could look back. And so please hear me say this, guys. There's a day coming in 10,000 years when we'll be able to look back and we'll be able to say, or it might even be in one year, it might even be in a month where we can look back and say, do you remember how concerned we were for this? Do you remember how, do you remember the temptation to freak out? And that we will be able to look back and say, man, God delivered us again and again and again. And then when you walk into that haunted house, do not let your environment overwhelm your foundation. Right? I did that when I was a kid. When I was a child, I thought like a child. But we're called to be men of God and women of God. That's it. That's all I've got. I'm going to pray. Father, thank you for your truth, God. Thank you that the world, um, even though it is scary, I'm going to be honest, it is, it's scary and it looks bleak. Lord, help us, help us to, to keep our foundation that our world would not overwhelm or overpower our foundation. And our foundation is not in man. It is not on the shoulders of man. Our foundation is not our ability to tough it up or get through it. Our foundation is not, hopefully our government can figure this out. Our foundation is not, maybe the culture will get better. None of the, our foundation is not, oh man, maybe I'll, I'll make more money or, or the, the stock market will come through. None of that is our foundation because all of those will fail us long in the long run. Help us to realize our foundation is in you, Lord. And, and the reality is no environment can overwhelm that foundation. And so, Lord, give us faith. We just pray for faith. God, I believe, but help my unbelief. My gosh, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. So that's our prayer today. Um, amen.